thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, space, time, brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week we're shining a light on LEDs. How do they work? Why do we need them? And how are we going to light up our homes in the future? Plus, snacking on spiders, a new robot to treat heart failure and burning batteries. I'm Greer Jackson. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, 40 million people are affected worldwide by heart failure. This is where the heart muscle is diseased and cannot pump sufficient amounts of blood. It's very debilitating and it robs sufferers of their quality of life. At the moment, the only long-term effective solution is a transplant, but only a tiny minority of people are lucky enough to receive one. This has prompted researchers to develop gadgets called ventricular assist devices that can be plumbed into the heart to help it to pump but they're not without problems. Now, Ellen Roach has designed a much better one, which fits around the heart like a glove. So this is a sleeve made of rubber um, with embedded balloons that can contract um, and beat with the heart to help the heart to pump additional blood around the body. The advantage of this type of technology is that the sleeve goes around the outside of the heart and it doesn't contact the blood like the um, existing ventricular assist devices. Why is it a problem if these devices contact blood? Because blood is pumped through foreign materials and in contact with foreign components, it can clot and clotting can lead to events such as stroke. So patients that have these devices are on blood thinners and this medication can itself have complications. Now tell us about the device and how is it put in and and how does it work? So the device will be placed around the heart surgically. For this study in our preclinical models we open the chest um, through the sternum which is the chest bone and it's surgically placed around the heart. And the device itself is made of silicone and we've embedded artificial muscles that are um, small contractile elements and we oriented them in a way that mimicked the way the muscle of the heart is organised. So when they contracted, you got squeezing motion as well as twisting motion and this is how the heart itself moves. So by mimicking the heart, we could improve the output. And how do you power the device? How do you make it go through those shape changes? So the elements work by pressurised air that comes from an external pressurised air source. And we have pressure regulators and valves. And these are synchronised to open and close when the heart contracts and relaxes. So you're effectively applying a pressure to the heart from outside, squeezing the, the blood is a bit like sort of squeezing a cloth in your fist and wringing the water out. It's sort of doing that to the heart and therefore helping it to eject enough blood to go around the body. 
Exactly. And as you mentioned, squeezing, but also ringing, this twisting really helps. And that's something that's different to um, previously described research in this area. Now, heart failure comes in lots of different flavours and, yeah. and can affect one side of the heart over the other because we have a left side and a right side to the heart which do slightly different jobs. So can your device accommodate all these ranges of heart failure types? Yeah, exactly. One of the nice things about our device is it's quite modular so we can independently actuate or pressurise different sides of the device. So we can program it so that only the left side will contract. Um, we can also adjust the timing and the degree of assistance delivered to the heart and tailor it to uh, specific patient needs. And what sort of performance can you get out of this? I know you've only done this preclinically, and that means you're working on things like pigs, doesn't it? But what yeah. sort of performance will it generate? Um, so in our preclinical models, we used a drug to slow down the heart and to reduce contractility, and the um, output from the main vessel coming from the heart, the flow in the aorta, it's called, um, reduced down to about 50% of, of healthy function. This simulated the reduction in function that you would typically see in a heart failure patient. And we were able to bring that back up to very close to the healthy baseline level. How does the heart tolerate having one of these devices in contact with it? Does it object to being squeezed from the outside in this way? Could it become bruised and damaged? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one we looked at in the paper. At the interface between the device and the heart, there is a risk that you'll have some friction and damage. So we um, looked at introducing a hydrogel, kind of a jelly-like layer that would sit at the interface of the heart and device and reduce the trauma or the friction that the device could impart on the heart and protect it, really. Is there no alternative to doing this with a, an external compressed air source? Because, of course, one of the things people are going to find objectionable is having to trail around with tubes and leads coming out of themselves. Yeah, so currently um, there are devices that have portable pressurised fluid canisters that can be worn on a belt or a backpack, we used air for this proof of concept study, but we could change it to helium, which is, you know, a lower molecular weight, or we could use fluid like water. Ideally, we'd like to move to an implantable pump. Um, so, you know, the less hardware that's external to the body, as you mentioned, the better. Even in terms of power, eventually it would be nice to move to batteries that could be charged through the skin or transcutaneously. That's in the future. And we wish her luck. That was Ellen Roach. She's from the National University of Ireland and she published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You may remember the stories last year about the Galaxy Note 7 catching fire. Although unconfirmed by Samson, many suspect that an overheating battery was at fault. Now a group of researchers from Stanford University might be able to help. They've released a design for a battery that comes complete with a fire extinguisher. Our tech guru Peter Cowley joins us. First of all, how common are these batteries? Well, batteries are very common, have been for many years, but these are lithium-ion batteries and these... Are 
worked out probably about one per head of population on the globe per year. So many, many billions per year are manufactured and sold. So it's not just in your smartphone? No, it's in cars, it's in tools, it's in laptops. It's a great energy density for a rechargeable battery. And why is it that they're so vulnerable to catching fire? Well, mainly because we're wanting the devices to have greater and greater energy density. So we want our phones to be smaller, we want them to last longer, etc. And because of that, you end up with the potential of either manufacturing tolerances going wrong, materials being too small or geometry being wrong. The other thing, if you get the charging wrong, you can overcharge one of these devices. They can go wrong and potentially catch fire. When you say overcharged, do you mean literally leave your phone plugged in? No, for too no, long? it's to do with the charging process. And so it's nothing at the No, no, don't worry down. about that. That's not not a problem there. So, so it's it's to do with something happening in there which will lead to more gases being produced than it should. Obviously, pressure will build up. That could cause some sort of explosion. This is very, very uncommon. We must make it absolutely certain <laughs> that it doesn't happen. You know, we've all carrying these around. I've got two in my pocket at the moment. I'm not worried about that at all. Mm-hmm. And so how does this fire extinguisher work? It's really cunning, actually. I mean, it's not... It's not I'm imagining it's not like a great... I'm, uh, thinking, I'm no, thinking about a fire no. extinguisher like those <laughs> and, very and good carbon It's actually automatic thing. as well, so you don't have to catch this fire <laughs> and you press a button or something. Or an app actually switches on. No, it's nothing like that. It's a material called triphenyl phosphate, which is used for fire suppression anyway. Way, embedded in a little capsule inside the battery and when that reaches 150 degrees centigrade then it breaks open releases this tpp material and we'll put it out within half a second or so we'll put the fire out sounds so simple it is but there's a big big downside because this takes up quite a lot of space so this energy density we're all wanting will be reduced by the this fire extinguisher now i've got no clue what the proportion is but it might be some maybe something like a third or something of the battery wow, okay so it's quite a trade-off then. It it is, exactly, yeah. So do you envisage this sort of technology going beyond mobile phones well, into your laptops, things uh, like that? Yeah, well, if we look at cars, I mean, the, the cars, obviously more and more cars will be electric. The batteries there, and there are videos of Tesla catching fire on YouTube, but what they're doing is they're much lower energy density. It's not so important to do that. And also use individual cells. So if one cell goes, it won't take the whole lot out. There are 150,000 car fires per year mm. in the States in normal petrol and diesel cars. That's high. Well, it's very high. Yeah, well, it works out because it's three billion miles a year, billion miles a year driven. About one fire per twenty million miles from a car. And apparently, it's five times less than an electric vehicle. So it's actually safer to be an electric vehicle. Huh. I guess these things just get publicised a bit more. Exactly. By the media. Yeah, we'll wait and see. <laughs> People like us. Exactly. Anyway, we'll move on from that. Yes. So moving forward, are there any alternatives to batteries? Well, we there there are, about? of course, things, you know, nuclear power, fuel cells of various sorts. But the one that I think we probably ought to talk about is energy harvesting. This is the concept of taking energy from the air or from movement. So this is heat from the body. It's movement of the body. It's stepping on on paving slabs or on etc. These are electrics. These are electrics exactly. Around, and this yeah. rather cunning piece of technology I've got here in front of me, which is uh, collects radio frequencies from the air. This is from routers, it's from mobile phones, it's from the screens we've got around us, even the microphone, my watch, my, <laughs> we'll collect that and the then things. we'll power things with it. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't, you know, it's quite a big device I've got in front of me, but it, it, it won't last very long with the amount of energy. But this is only the start of energy harvesting generally. So let's have a look at this. This is what, about the size of a smartphone, except it's very, very thin, isn't it? And it's, it, it's, it looks it's, like it's a, a gas of- sensing device, and I can tell you it's, it's called Clean Space. It's a UK company, and there are probably thousands of those around the place, particularly around inside the M25, monitoring the pollution in the air. So, and but the point about this is, is or oh, there is a battery in there in case mm. it's not picking much RF. It will last for say five to ten years, partly charged by the radio frequency in the air. 
could we charge our smartphones with things like this? Uh, it would take a very long time. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I worked it out that the energy from this, uh, from the manufacturer's data sheet, to charge that battery would take 185,000 years. Now, maybe my calculation is <laughs> wrong, and I certainly wouldn't want to be <laughs> spread that. Into, but uh, no, it's, it's wearables. Wearables taking energy off our movement. I mean, we. Oh, another figure I've worked out actually. If you were to be powered personally by AA cells, 650 AA cells would run you for a day as a human being. Wow. Now, some of that's going as heat, some of it's going as movement, some of it's going as thought, possibly. I don't know how much energy that takes. But you can imagine <laughs> that being captured. <laughs> how am I then... <laughs> Let's talk to Chris about this. <laughs> Who's got the PhD in this room? I haven't. Um, so the uh, collecting from energy, you, you wouldn't miss is the thing. You would miss it, of course, because you're still having to use it. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't generally miss it. So, mm-hmm. Well, what strikes me is that batteries have still got a long way to go if they take a 1,000 or double batteries to power me for the day. Peter Peter Kelly, thank you very much. And the work we were discussing from Stanford University was published in Science Advances. That's a whole new spin on the phrase Duracell bunny, doesn't it? Now, you're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Greer Jackson. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. On the way, we're taking a look inside an LED to find out how they work. And coming up shortly, we'll be remembering the last man on the moon. But before that, it's time for our regular myth conception. And this is where we take scientific dogma to task. And Katani has been looking at the science for us of the midnight feast. But it's not what you think. The land of Nod is a mysterious place. And we're blissfully unaware of most things that are happening to us while we sleep. It's common knowledge that one of the things we do is eat spiders. A remarkably precise eight every year. So where did this idea come from? Topically, given the current media discussions about fake news, it was made up by a journalist back in 1993. According to the myth-busting website Snopes, Lisa Holst wrote an article for the magazine PC Professional highlighting the way that emails packed with ridiculous made-up facts were being circulated by the gullible and credulous. Ah, how times have changed. As part of her piece, Holst presented her own list of totally made-up stats, including the one about eating eight spiders. In turn, she got it from a list of common misconceptions about insects in a book published back in 1954. However, and this must be pointed out with some irony, there's no independent confirmation that Snopes' story is true either. So let's think about the likelihood of snapping up a spider in your sleep at night. According to Scientific American, which spoke to several spider experts in search of an answer, spiders are more likely to run away from a sleeping human than start exploring us. They're scared off by vibrations, produced by our heartbeats, breathing and especially snoring, and people are likely to be woken up by the sensation of something crawling on their face before the spider gets into their mouth. However, there are plenty of anecdotal stories of people being bitten by spiders in the night and also biting back, reporting finding bits of legs between their teeth in the morning. So although we probably do eat the odd spider during a lifetime, it's impossible to know for sure, or how many. The only way to find out would be to film many people asleep night after night and then carefully watch the tapes to spot any spiders crawling their way into an open mouth. Not only does that sound like a very boring research project, it's also more than a bit creepy in itself. 
In fact, if you're worried about eating spiders or other insects, you're actually far more likely to have chomped on them when you're wide awake, as they're often found in processed food. One estimate suggests the average person unintentionally eats about half a kilo of insects every year. There are even legal limits on the amount. For example, the US puts a limit of 60 insect fragments per 100 grams of chocolate, in case you are wondering why that fruit and nut bar was extra crunchy. Finally, rather than worrying about accidentally knocking back a few spiders at night time, some cultures even make a point of eating arachnids. Fried spiders are a popular street food in the Cambodian town of Skuon, where a species of tarantula the size of your palm is mixed with sugar, salt and garlic, and then fried in oil. Apparently they are crispy on the outside and soft in the middle, tasting a bit like a cross between chicken and fish. Proof, if ever it was needed, that anything can be made edible if you fry it with enough garlic. And while I may never know exactly how many spiders I've eaten by accident... I think I'll give those ones a miss. I'm with you, Kat. Kat Arnie there. And if you've got some suspicious sounding science that you've come across and you'd like us to look into, you can drop us a line. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll see what we can dig up. Now, we were saddened here at The Naked Scientist to learn of the death recently of NASA astronaut Captain Eugene Cernum. And he's famous because he was the last person to set foot on the moon. Tom O'Hanlon reports. I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December. Now, May. May. May is the month. May, that's right. May is the year of the month. On the 16th of January 2017, the last human to stand on the moon passed away. Captain Jean Cernan heard there in a lunar duet with fellow Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt. Gene travelled into space three times on Gemini 9A, Apollo 10 and as commander of Apollo 17. He's also one of only three people to have travelled to the moon twice. Back in 2014, the Space Boffins podcast interviewed Gene and he encouraged others to literally follow in his footsteps, but also to explore the rest of our solar system. All we've done now is prove we can do it, close the barn door and said, be happy about it. And that's not good enough. We are going to go back to the moon. Why? All we did was prove we can work and survive up there. Now we got to take advantage of the resources the moon has to offer us here on this planet. And it's a stepping stone to go to that place called Mars. Is there water? Was there water? Could life exist? Is Mars like Earth was a jillion years ago? Or is Mars like Earth might be a jillion years in the future? Maybe we're going to go simply because it's there, simply because we can, and that's why we will. Using the moon as a stepping stone to explore Mars would help us further our understanding of the universe and our place within it. But not only that, if humanity is to survive the threats of dinosaur-killing asteroids, supervolcanoes, or even a nuclear war, we need to have a backup home, and Mars is the only candidate so far. With current levels of interest, a mission to Mars may be on the cards sooner rather than later. I don't care whether it's two years, ten years, or fifty years. I'd, I'd like it to be tomorrow morning. It isn't going to be. But those young kids are going to follow on our footsteps. They're going to pick up where we left off and take us back out there where we belong. In December 1972, as Gene prepared to return to planet Earth, he scratched his daughter's initials on the lunar surface and left us with these words... 
Moon and Taurus Littrell. We leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. With peace and hope for all mankind. Peace and hope for all mankind, an attitude we could all learn from. Tom O'Hanlon there with footage from the Space Boffins and NASA. A new study suggests that thousands of middle-aged women could be silently suffering from bulimia, anorexia or binge eating. These mental illnesses are usually associated with teenage girls, but the research showed that 1 in 28 mature women are struggling with an eating disorder and the majority of them are not seeking any help. Liz Frazier had bulimia for 15 years and she told me how it nearly cost her her life. With mental health problems, I think it's very difficult to identify the moment that it started. I mean, I was a fairly typical case, I guess. I was 15, not very happy at home. Brother leaves home, a lot of academic pressure, very highly driven, very high standards. But losing a little bit of weight became a thing. And you had a graph, you know, I I used to like plotting the numbers. And if the numbers didn't go down, then that was a bad day. So everything good or bad became associated with this graph. Regardless of my size, that was almost immaterial. What starts as something every so often then becomes all the time and then becomes an addiction. And at that point, Even if you don't want to exhibit these behaviours, even if you don't want to behave that way, you still will, because that's what you do. Was there a point for you where you just thought, this is it, I've gone too far and I need help? Or what was that turning point for you? For me, as with many people, there were probably many points like that. That's one of the frustrating things with addictions, isn't it? You have those moments where you go, right, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to, you know, going to put lists on fridges and I'm going to, you know, and then you don't. Or you do for a while and you have a relapse. And every time that happens, you think, damn it, you know, God, this was, I was not going to do this. I was going to be determined. And then that knocks you even further down. And then for whatever reason, you wake up feeling stronger and you're going to go, right, I'm going to sort this out. So I think you have to be prepared. One has to be prepared in the recovery process for these relapses to occur and not to get lower and lower down. I mean, I had three children during this time. Um, Not when I was 15, I hasten to add. Uh, You know, this continued till I was 30. 30 is often quite a turning point for people. Um, So I looked well and I appeared to be functioning well. I I got a degree from Cambridge and I was making films and TV programmes. I had young kids, I was looking after them. To anybody in the outside world, I was very well. But I think the real crunch moment came for me when my, my youngest was about one, something, one or one and a half and I just, one day in my kitchen, I just nearly died, right, standing right there. And it, I can I can remember the feeling, of, um, this sort of ice cold, I mean, just freezing, like that was it. Sadly, Liz isn't alone. Dr Richard Sly from the eating disorder charity, Beat. They affect about 725,000 men and women of all ages and backgrounds in the UK. It's not just this stereotype that people have of, um, you know, young middle-class teenage girls going through a phase or doing it to look good it, these are serious mental illnesses which which you know can impact on anybody now liz described her experience of bulimia she had bulimia 15 years but amazingly she was functional still she had three children but my understanding is that eating disorders actually claim more lives than any other mental illness like depression or psychosis yeah absolutely i mean anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate out of any mental illness out there These are um, illnesses which can really destroy someone's life and impact greatly on the family of that person as well. 
Because this study published recently in the BMC is looking at, for the first time, which I find very staggering, about the prevalence of eating disorders in women across all ages, particularly in their 40s and 50s. And I was surprised at some of the statistics in that. It was 15% of women had had an eating disorder at some point in their life and 3.6% were currently struggling one now. Is this something that you were surprised by? Well, first, I'd like to say that we wholeheartedly welcome this research. There's not enough research. So this is actually really important, really exciting research. And this figure of um, 15% of uh, women having an eating disorder at some point in their life and 3% currently suffering is is actually quite alarming. But it's not something we're particularly surprised by. So Beat run a helpline, which is open 365 days a year. And last year, 15% of our calls to the helpline were about um, someone over the age of 40. So this research further supports the importance of providing an, an appropriate treatment pathway for individuals with uh, eating disorders of all ages, because at the moment, the focus is very much on helping young people out. And people in their later years or in, in midlife find it very, very hard to get the treatment they need for their eating disorder. And what is the treatment for it? How do you get better or recover from something like this? Well, recovery is hard, but it's possible and it's incredibly worth it. Generally, it's, it's going to be a, a form of talking therapy and people can start thinking about the reasons behind their behaviours. Because the sad fact is, and this is something the paper highlights, is that those who reported having an eating disorder less than a third of them actually sought any help. And I, w I just wonder, why is that? What is the barrier there from people getting what they really deserve and need? I think in this population that we're talking about, they can find it almost embarrassing to go to a GP and say that you have this illness, which wrongly associated to be a, you know, a teenage girl's illness. And I think there can be a lot of shame or embarrassment around that. Liz, despite all the stigmatising and stereotyping, did seek help and turned her experience into something positive, a website. It's inmyheadcase.com. She hopes Headcase will turn mental health on its head by sharing her experiences. Yeah, Headcase came out of all of my experiences of different types of mental health problems, whether it be eating disorders when I was younger. When I was in my 30s, I had panic attacks. And then I had a breakdown in my early 40s. And what I found every time I talked about it, that person would say, I had that too. Or my mum had that. My friend has that. There's a guy at work who has that. It really began to strike me that this stuff is everywhere. Mental health issues affect absolutely everybody. And if it's not you, it's someone you know. It's part of your life. And for as long as we keep it as something weird, it will be associated like that. I want people to wear the head case badges and, and stand up and, and say, yeah, I look after my head. I've got literally no problem with that at all. If I've got a sore knee, I get it seen to. If I'm feeling anxious, jumpy, panicky, freaked out in any way, I will go and find some help about that. I acknowledge that. And I'll look after my head just as well as I look after my body. Liz Fraser, and the study we were referring to came out in BMC Medicine. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Greg Jackson, and now on to the main part of the show, LED lighting, the revolution which is happening under our noses. 
Over the last few years, LEDs, or light-emitting diodes, have started appearing in our homes, our offices and our smartphones. But how many of us really know what's going on inside of them? And could they have a dark side? We'll be finding out later in the programme. First, though, we're joined by Luminary. Do you see what I did there? Colin Humphreys. He's from the University of Cambridge. And from about the 1990s, he and his team pioneered a brand new way to make LEDs, which has led directly to the UK being able to set up its own manufacturing plant now to make LEDs for the first time in this country. So we're very privileged to have you with us, Colin. Tell us, though, before we launch into the LED saga, about our love affair with light and and how we have gone from campfires as a source of light to where we are today. Okay, so I guess our love affair with light started about 400,000 years ago when Homo erectus, who preceded Homo sapiens, who was us, they started lighting these campfires for heat and also for cooking and to scare off wild animals and also for light. And then people thought it'd be really nice to have a portable source of light. We have to wait until about 1750 BC for the Babylonians and the Egyptians to have oil lamps. And they had sesame seed oil lamps. And it took 50 hours of the average worker to get enough money to buy the oil for one hour of light. So it was really valuable stuff. And then if you come up to about 1800 AD, we had candles and you had to work about six hours there to get one hour of light so you could buy the candles. And then if you come up nearer to this time, you had kerosene lamps, then incandescent light bulbs. And all of these, you had heated sources and light was a byproduct of the heat. And now we've got LEDs and they're really important because it's the first light source which doesn't depend on heat to get the light. And in fact, today you, work, you have to work 0.6 seconds to get an hour of light. So it's just a huge increase in efficiency. You know, I, I haven't worked today, it's sort of 64,000 times or something to go from 1880 to today. But basically, LEDs, they're very, very efficient because they give out very little heat and light is what they really are giving out. So just to clarify the point you're making, which is that if you look at, say, an Edisonian light bulb, this thing we plug into the ceiling with a piece of tungsten filament that glows. We're putting electricity through that. We're making it get white hot, glow a few thousand degrees. And it's that glowing that's giving us some light, but only about 15% of the electricity we put in turns into anything you can see. The majority of it is light you can't see. It's infrared heat. Yeah, it's actually about 5%. It's even worse, worse than, than you than said. said. So 5% comes up as light, 95% is heat. And the LEDs we have today, they're about 35% efficient. In the lab, we have LEDs which are 75% of the light, and those LEDs will be working their way into the marketplace in the next few years. I was going to say, if you've got these lamps and they're 75% efficient, you know, it's 100% better than what's on the market at the moment. Why are they not on the shelves? Well, it takes a bit of time for the researcher to Colin, get out into the marketplace, <laughs> but we're, we're running hard. <laughs> so how have you got a doubling in the efficiency? It's really do a lot of research on, on the details and then some major breakthroughs. And, and the other thing which is happening is the reduction in costs, which is really important. And one thing that we've done is to grow LEDs on silicon. Other people are growing LEDs on sapphire wafers, the ones you buy in the shop. And that's very expensive, sapphire. And we've developed most of them going on silicon. And as you say, we set up a couple of companies in Cambridge. They got acquired by Plessy, a UK company. And Plessy are making the first LEDs on silicon in the world and the first LEDs in the UK at all. We've got a little demo here to demonstrate and really put into reality the points you're making about the efficiency. We've got here a hand crank which has got a drill motor from a DC drill, electric drill, in it. And when you turn the crank, obviously you're turning the motor, which then generates some electricity and wired up to it are some LED lights and some old-fashioned tungsten 
lights. So I'm going to turn the handle and you can switch me on and we'll do the LEDs first. And I'm going to demonstrate really how hard it is or not to actually do this. So let's start. I'll start turning. If you could, if you okay. could load me up with some LEDs first. Let's start the LEDs first. Right. Now, if I'm honest, it was really easy, and I got these these two LED bulbs. They're the kind of thing you'd see in the ceiling of your house, and they were bright light, and now I've got white spots all over my eyes from doing that. It was really easy to do that. Right, well, now I'll go on to the tungsten halogen bulbs, and Chris is going to try again. Okay, so we'll turn this on. Okay, you've made your point. Um, I'm actually out of breath from doing that. It's very, very difficult to turn the crank. Is that because they're using so much more energy in order to make the same? Because they were equivalently bright to the LEDs. I, I had to wind it a lot harder, though. That is right. So these, are using, these take so much more energy to, to, to light up than, than the LED bulbs. So the LEDs are a really very efficient source of light. If we were to translate that into carbon equivalents, in other words, carbon dioxide that we're not emitting because we're turning far more of the electricity into visible light than heat, Mm. how much carbon are we saving by using LEDs in our homes? Okay, so lighting takes about 20% of all electricity. It's much more than people think. With the LED lighting, that comes down to 10%, and with the future, it will come down to 5%. And so if that electricity is coming from power stations, at the moment we're saving 10% of all the electricity from power, all the electricity and carbon emissions from power stations. In the future, we'll be saving 15% with the LEDs of carbon emissions from power stations. That's a lot of carbon dioxide. It's a lot of wasted energy at the moment, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yes, I mean, this 15% is, is what you're going to get probably from solar and wind power combined, you know, so it's really important. Now, as we've just been hearing, we know that LEDs are so much more efficient, but why? Tom O'Hanlon and Cambridge University's material scientist, Rachel Oliver, cut up an LED with a diamond saw, I might add, to find out. Welcome to the lab. First things first, we need to put the lab coats on. Just uh, do up the poppers. Now, I'm sure lots of people have seen an LED bulb, but what they actually look like these days is very much like a normal light bulb, maybe with a sort of frosted glass cover. And it's a bit difficult to tell why this is different to a normal light bulb that you might have been buying for years and years. So what we thought we might do this morning is take one apart and find out what's inside. Now we're going to do that using a diamond saw over here. We've got here an LED bulb that's really in several parts. We've got this yellow globe. It looks a bit like a small ping pong ball. And then underneath we can see a load of circuit boards and things like that. Okay, so the LEDs are those little chips maybe about five millimetres across? Yeah, something like that. This bulb's got six LEDs in. Different bulbs have different numbers. They're quite small chips. They're actually quite small devices. And they're made from a material called gallium nitride. That's a material that you don't find in nature. LED manufacturers grow it in big crystal growth systems. And we actually have one of those big crystal growth systems here where we make experimental LED structures and try and improve them. Now we're in the growth lab, and what we're looking at here is one of our um, crystal growth systems. It's about the size of a transit van, but a lot of the bulk is actually just things like control electronics and systems that handle gases. They move gases around. 
The gallium nitride is built up by reacting a gas called trimethyl gallium, which supplies the gallium, with ammonia, which supplies the nitrogen. These gases are passed through a surprisingly familiar piece of plumbing. The gallium and the nitrogen come through a structure called a showerhead, which looks like a showerhead. Oh, the sort of nice ones you get in fancy hotels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, admittedly, it doesn't look much like my showerhead at home, which is white and plastic. Below the showerhead is a wafer, similar to what you get with ice cream. But instead of biscuit, it's made from either man-made sapphire or silicon. Rachel heats these wafers up to 1,000 degrees Celsius, and the gases split apart on the wafer surface and react to build up the LED crystal layer by layer. Well, the gallium nitride layers that are sort of the base that we grow for the LED, they're typically about four microns thick. So a micron is one one-thousandth of a millimetre. The actual light-emitting layers, the bit the light comes out from, are much, much thinner, of the order of a millionth of a millimetre. So very, very thin light-emitting layers. We've spoken about how you, uh, you make the material used to make these LEDs, uh, but how do they actually emit light? Well, I've got something in my office which might help you to understand that, so why don't we walk back through there? To my surprise, Rachel showed me a wooden game I hadn't seen in years. It's called Labyrinth. Do you remember it? You have to roll a ball bearing through a maze, twizzling knobs on the side to tilt the board up, down, left and right, trying to avoid it falling down some holes. How's this anything like an LED, though? Well, it comes down to these layers. On one side of the LED, the layer is tweaked so there are extra electrons, which are negative. On the other side, some electrons are missing, leaving behind holes which are positively charged. When you flick the light switch on, the negative electrons and the positive holes are pushed towards each other. So we can think of our electron as being the ball bearing, and the holes in the toy are just the holes in the crystal. And where the electron and the hole meet, the electron basically falls down into the hole, just as the ball bearing falls into the holes in the toy. So how are your skills at this uh, labyrinth game, Rachel? Uh, Not great. So well, should we see how far I can keep it going before my electron recombines with my hole? Let's have a go. I've I've got to get around my first corner now, and I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Oh, I've managed one corner. Oh! You heard there the process by which my ball bearing, which is my electron, lost some of its energy. It fell down and it went clunk at the bottom, and some of the energy it had when it was at the higher level got converted into sound energy. In the LED, obviously, the electron and hole meeting gives us light, but the basic principle's just the same. In these LEDs, the electron falling into the hole creates blue light. To get white light, you need what Rachel described earlier as a yellow ping-pong ball. It's coated with chemicals called phosphors, which converts some of the blue light to yellow. Yellow light plus blue makes white. Rachel also told me about another trick LEDs use to make light more efficiently. It's all to do with these very, very thin layers I talked about which actually give the light out. The reason they're very, very thin is that we're using them to trap the electron and hole together in the same place. Now, it's like if you and I needed to meet up to have a cup of coffee, if I said to you, great, let's meet up tomorrow and we'll meet in Cambridge, well... We might find each other, but it's not very likely. If I say to you, let's meet up and have a coffee in the common room at the Department of Material Science, quite likely we'll actually manage to find each other and have our coffee and our chat. So we're doing the same thing with the electron and the hole. And because they meet quickly and efficiently and combine to give out light, there's no time for them to wander off and find maybe mistakes in the crystal where that process by which they combine could go wrong and give out heat. 
really, in terms of the research we do, one of the key things we do is think about the structures that give out the light. They're very, very small. And we try and engineer them so that that process where the electron and the hole meet is as fast and efficient as possible. And that makes the overall device as efficient as possible. Now, who would have thought that board games and LEDs could have so much in common? That was Cambridge University's Rachel Oliver, and she was speaking with Tom O'Hanlon. You're on The Naked Scientist with me, Greg Jackson, and Chris Smith. And today, the lighting revolution that's going straight over our heads, LEDs. Now, we've heard how they work, but what effect do they have on our inner workings? Evidence suggests that these bright lights could be affecting our sleep cycles, and a lack of sleep has been linked to a whole host of diseases, including even cancer. Mari Heising from Uni Research Health in Bergen is a sleep expert. But before we go to that, can I just ask you, Mary, what is a body clock and why do we have one? So a body clock is the internal biological clock that helps us keep our 24-hour cycle. And we need that to have our day and night routines. So this body clock is actually controlled by the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain, helping us keep our circadian rhythm. And how is it affected by light? So light is really important to set this body clock. So what it does, in short, is when the eye signals that it's dark, the suprachiasmatic nucleus starts the production of melatonin, and that's the sleep hormone. It's very important to have good sleep. And in the same way, in the morning, the light suppresses the body's production of melatonin. So essentially, light keeps us on a good day and night rhythm. What about different types of light, I'm thinking? Bluer light, brighter white lights and even red lights. Do they all have a different way in which they interact with our body clocks? Well, actually, all light affects melatonin and our body clocks. But we know that the LED lighting is even more efficient in that sense. So it has a stronger effect on our melatonin production than the other light sources. So what happens is that if you have bright light, for example, LED lighting in the evening, you actually delay your circadian rhythm. And instead of being sleeping and going to bed, you feel more alert and you can often end up with too short sleep. I mean, that doesn't sound like the end of the world, a little bit of lost sleep. Is that really that dangerous or that bad? Well, of course, everyone has a bad night's sleep once in a while and that's not dangerous. But we do know that insufficient sleep over a long period of time is associated with poor mental and physical health. For instance, we know that if you just have a few hours of sleep, you're easily irritated, more worried. I think everyone can relate to that. But we also know that this, for instance, is related to depression in the long run. And another example that we've been studying here in Bergen is that if you have short sleep duration, and this was among adolescents, we found that they have poor school performance compared to others. And that's maybe not that surprising when we know that sleep is important for memory and concentration, for instance. So that was in students that were presumably using smartphones and tablets late at night and it was delaying this production of melatonin and therefore they were getting to sleep later and still waking up at that same time. And they had worse grades. How much worse were they? Well, they were significantly worse. So it's a Norwegian grading system. But what we found that the students between 16 and 18 that went to sleep between 10 and 11, they had far better grades. So is it as simple as not using screens later at night then? Well, I guess that's one solution. Another thing you can do is at least try to log off the last hour before you go to sleep. 
And if you're not able to log off all the way, you, there are some of the screens now that at least you can turn off some of the blue lights so, or the LED lighting so that at least you have more dim lighting and the light that doesn't affect your sleep in the same way. Fantastic. Colin, I just wanted to ask you what the world of LEDs is doing about it. If LEDs are giving off these blue light, yes, we're putting these phosphor, uh, what were they called, ping pong balls over the top, but there's still some blue light coming out there. So what are they doing in your industry to compensate for that? Yeah, because okay. so, I mean, the receptor in the eye is most sensitive to the blue light. So the blue light is the problem, as you say. So we want to mimic natural sunlight. And what we're trying to do now, instead of having the phosphor, we want to make white light using red, green and blue LEDs, right? It's the obvious way to do it. We haven't done that so far because green is very inefficient. But if we push the efficiency of green up, it's called the green gap problem, then we'll have red, green and blue LEDs and people will be able to control the colour quality just as they want. So if you want a romantic supper, you have a reddish white light. Colin, you mention the green gap, that these green LEDs are just inefficient in comparison to the blue and red. Why is that? Well, they're more inefficient because to get the green light out, you have to grow at a lower temperature than getting the blue light out. And when you grow at a lower temperature, you have more defects in the crystal, impurities and defects, and that quenches the light emission. So they're less efficient. So this is like in Tom when Tom went to go and see Rachel. Yes. And they talked about the electrons combining with the whole, like the labyrinth game. That's is right. that if there's more problems with the structure, then yeah. those those electrons don't meet those holes and you don't produce the light. Yeah, well they actually the electrons actually go to the defects and the holes go to the defects. They don't combine properly and they ah. don't give out the light. They give out heat, actually, rather than light. Oh, so we don't want exactly it. You don't, don't want, want it. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting news is, and this is, last, this is this week's work, right? If you form gallium nitride with different atomic arrangement, different crystal structure, then we think we can solve this green gap problem. We're just doing this now, so it's, you know, it's for a future broadcast. But we, we've, uh, we've, we can see really brilliant green light coming out of this, and we just have to measure the efficiency, which we haven't yet done. But in the next four weeks, we'll do that. Wow. So we think we may have solved this problem. This is really up to date. I've got the solution right here rather than scrolling through social media sites until the early hours why not just turn off the lights and listen to our podcast instead <laughs> but not on a smartphone that you're looking <laughs> Mary Heising from Uni Research Health in Bergen thank you very much and also to Colin Humphreys as well now we started this off with fire now we've got LEDs but what is next well one bright idea is to use lasers to light up our homes. By cranking up the electricity and adding a few mirrors, you can actually turn an LED into a laser source. Feed that into a fibre optic and you could distribute the light all over your house and turn high-energy blue light into almost any colour you want. And you could adapt a wall, a floor, a ceiling, anything to receive the light and then glow to illuminate your room. You could even, as Stephen Dembars, who works on this at the University of California, Santa Barbara, put it to me, turn your sofa or your curtains into light sources. You can imagine you could have one blue light source per house, and in, rather than run your light around with uh, copper wires, you could route the light with uh, plastic or, or glass fiber optics through the rest of the house and then convert it to white light uh, whenever you need it. And therefore, you could uh, you know, drop a lot of the cabling needed for lighting, but you could also imagine very different-looking lighting fixtures. Uh, you don't need big, bulky metal fixtures anymore. You would need very small sources, or you could even think about weaving fabric into the curtains or the ceiling to get a distributed effect. 
So we're talking about the death of Edison's dream, really, aren't we? We're saying this is the end of the light bulb as we know it. We don't need that technology anymore. We, we just need to build fixtures and fittings that could take a fibre optic input driven by a laser, which could be you know, hundreds of feet away elsewhere in the building, and the light arrives in a tube called a fibre optic, goes into that surface, and the whole wall or the whole ceiling or even, as you say, your curtains glow, and that illuminates the room. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we, we think this gives the designer a lot of freedom, but I will point out, you can actually see laser lighting today already in Europe. It turns out BMW and Audi have actually already released a high-end automobiles with laser headlights because it's so bright and efficient at directed light as well. I think there's more than a thousand cars already uh, on the roads in Europe using this laser lighting technology. Now, why do you think that running fibre optics around your house and bringing the light in as light rather than electricity in a copper wire is better? Yeah, that's a good point. The fiber optic cable can be extremely small. Uh, We're talking here uh, less than a millimeter. So you don't need to waste a lot of copper material, which, as you know, is expensive, uh, but also you could potentially get electrical shock. So it just lets you make lighting fixtures that are much smaller. So in existing buildings, they generally allocate almost a foot for all this cabling and fixturing. So I mainly think it's a, it's a way to just not only design cool fixtures, but save on the cabling and materials costs and metal associated with that as well. And with an eye on the whole concept of the Internet of Things, we talked in a recent edition of The Naked Scientist about the concept of Li-Fi, your connection to the Internet being via visual signals from light bulbs. Could you use this as an extension of that? Could people connect to the internet, download data by their wall flashing imperceptibly at them? Well, I, I'm impressed because uh, because you already made the connection that uh, we've been working on research only for two years uh, in a hard way. That is, I think there's been some work in the UK. I think it's uh, Professor Harold Haas has been doing Li-Fi with uh, LEDs. But we can do the same thing with laser lighting and in fact, we, we've already done that, and we've demonstrated um, communication speeds more than uh, 100 times faster than you can do with the traditional LED Li-Fi uh, bulbs you have in the store. That is, we're able to transmit uh, 5 gigabit per second. So just to give you some sense, that is uh, getting up into the same speed you'd use in a fiber optic cable. Now, is this safe? Steve, if I've got fibre optics running around my property and they're full of extremely intense, coherent blue laser light, if I were to accidentally chop into that, now I wouldn't get an electric shock, but I could blind myself, couldn't I? Yes, so we really need to develop exactly fail-safe optical systems and sensors. On a very high level, I'll just tell you some of the safety schemes we are working on is that if the cable is cut, within nanoseconds, the cable's able to sense that it's actually been cut and it immediately shuts off the laser. And how long is it going to be, do you think, before it's de rigueur to walk into your lounge and you will flick on a switch which won't activate a light bulb in the ceiling? It will make the ceiling glow and the curtains illuminate. It's going to take a decade, I think, to really make uh, laser lighting commonplace. However, it's already showing up in automotive lighting and even in cinema displays in uh, Asia. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So if your internet connection comes through your sofa... Does that make you a couch surfer? I wonder. That was Stephen Denbars from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you very much to him. Also with us this week is Colin Humphreys. Do you fancy the idea of of curtains illuminating your room from a a laser source? Colin, what do you think? 
You could have, you know, a whole wall of illumination in the room, which might be interesting. And we can, in fact, use an LED to do this as well. So a laser may be slightly more powerful, but the LEDs you can use. And in fact, in museums, they're using this to, to illuminate cabinets. So you don't actually you just see the fibres coming and their LEDs on, on the end. Gray, you like the idea of a sofa that illuminates the room? I just can't really imagine it. That or a glow-in-the-dark curtain. I mean, I don't really see the attraction in that rather than just having a regular light. What is the attraction? I well, I think the point is we design rooms at the moment with light sources being in the ceiling in a central point. You get dark, shadowy corners and it's dictating how rooms are formatted. And if you actually have the light coming from all different kinds of places it would allow designers a lot more freedom. I suppose I it might seem quite more natural as well. It could do, because it would mean that the room didn't have dark corners anymore. Mm. Well, now we turn to question of the week. This is my favourite part of the show, where you put your questions to us and we find an expert to answer them. This week, Tom Crawford's been crawling around in the dirt to answer this query from Carol. Do ants feel pain? I'm sure we've all killed an ant or two in our time, whether it's by accidentally stepping on them or the more sinister burning alive with a magnifying glass as a child. But do they feel pain? That's actually a really good question. Eleanor Drinkwater from the University of York, whose PhD is entirely on these six-legged creepy crawlies. Ants can definitely sense that they've been harmed and react, but it's been argued that there's a difference between simply sensing harm and reacting to it, or actually experiencing pain. Just sensing damage, but not feeling pain, is what's known as nociception. I find it hard to separate the idea of feeling pain and just reacting to danger. It's worth just thinking about what pain is. It's thought to involve an unpleasant sensation as well as a negative emotional reaction to injury. You get nociception, which is the sensory nervous system informing the brain that you've been hurt, and then the brain processes this to produce pain. But you can get one without the other. You can think of it like this. If you get tackled while doing sport, your sensory receptors may signal to the brain that something has happened. But it's only when you stop and realise how bad the injury is that you feel the pain. Ow! On the other hand, people who have lost a limb may experience phantom limb pain, in which they experience pain but without nociception. So we know that ants can sense harm and react to it, which is to say they experience nociception. But what about actual pain? Interestingly... Claims for the idea that insects can experience nociception without experiencing pain are somewhat backed up by studies on robots. Danger. Robots can be programmed to exhibit behaviours that we would tend to think of pain-like. For example, simroid robots used for dentist training will flinch if you poke them. Or, say, in games like The Sims, characters may jump around if they've been burnt. The fact that these behaviours can be programmed without the need for a pain element has been argued as evidence for the idea that a negative stimulus can be reacted to without the emotional element. Are you saying that ants experience pain in the same way as the simps? Not exactly. My personal view is that unlike the human systems that these programmes mimic, we currently know very little about insect expressions of pain, and even less about the neural systems of the many different species of insect that there are. We do know that there are differences between insect and mammalian neural systems, so it's unlikely that insects experience pain in the same way that humans do. However, I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility that at least some species of insect have some kind of insect version of pain, in addition to nociception. So basically, the jury's out. Either way, it's still good to be gentle with the little critters when you come across them. There you go, Carol. I hope we provided some insight. 
or should that be ant-sight, into your question. Next week, we get a little topsy-turvy as we tackle Tim's question. Is there any explanation why the magnetic field of Earth is north-south as opposed to east-west or any other angle? If you're leaning towards an answer, please tweet it to at Naked Scientist. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or join in the debate on the forum. It's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's all we have time for this week. A big thank you to our producer, Tom O'Hanlon. Now, next week, we're going to be putting the spotlight on our brains to investigate how the emerging field of optogenetics could change the lives of millions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by Rolls-Royce, the SDFC and the EPSRC. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.